the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us this afternoon, even though I've just spilled a cup of hot tea on my desk. It's a bad idea to rush in and attempt to <laughs> to pull that off. Uh, today we're going to hear from Joe Dallas. He uh, wrote an article for uh, CR- CRI, the Christian Research Institute. Is gay Christian an acceptable identity for those who are in Christ? We'll talk with him about how uh, individuals are self-identifying. They come on a f- the full spectrum of how they identify in terms of that particular sin. Uh, but we'll talk with him uh, about that later this hour. We're also going to talk with Pastor Clenard Childress. He's the founder of the website blackgenocide.org. He serves on the board of the Center for Bioethical Reform. And Jackie Hawkins, who's the director of Minority Outreach at the Center for Bioethical Reform. We're going to talk about the Genocide Awareness Project coming to Oregon. We'll explain what it is and what you might expect. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Also, we'll talk with Joni Militich. She's the area director of Prep for Kids. They're having their celebration dinner. If you'd like to learn more about this whole concept of release time and giving young people the opportunity to be taught from the scriptures during the school year, we'll talk about uh, how to do that and how the celebration uh, event coming up on the uh, the 28th can help you better understand this ministry and give you an opportunity uh, to volunteer or to support them in other ways. All of that coming up in today's program. Santa Rosa, California, as you uh, have probably been following, there has been quite a um, uh, quite a series of wildfires there. It's the third day that they have been raging. A cluster of these devastating wildfires have killed at least 15 people, destroyed more than 2,000 homes, businesses, other buildings. It raged virtually unchecked all across the state's uh, treasured wine country for the third day. Today, tens of thousands of Californians fled their homes, many of them holding up in shelters that authorities said could be operating for several days. Power outages, cell phone disruptions added to the chaos as people are trying to uh, communicate with one another amid the uh, fast-spreading uh, blazes, uh, prompting hundreds of missing person reports. So folks trying to connect with one another to determine if they're safe, if they've escaped, and so on. Uh, very challenging. The fires have been fueled by dry grasses and brush, heat, low humidity. They were fanned uh, by wind gusts reaching almost 80 miles per hour. And conditions improved somewhat today. The National Weather Service ended its red flag fire warning in some areas, but not all. Still, homes and other structures were uh, burning in some neighborhoods, and most areas remained unsafe for residents to return. Barry uh, Bierman, who's the deputy incident commander for the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, uh, indicated it's uh, understandable that when people don't see smoke, they want to to go back in, but it's simply not f- safe at this point. He also pleaded with the residents not to send in drones to view their property, saying that that could thwart uh, efforts to combat uh, aerial efforts against the fire. Uh, if you fly, we cannot fly, he said. Please make sure those drones don't go up. A whole nother layer of concern in trying to 
uh, take care of the interests of people and their property. Vice President Mike Pence in California for a series of fundraisers pledged federal support as your courageous firefighters and first responders confront this widening challenge. Yet another uh, area that the federal government will be overseeing in some way. Uh, Cal Fire said the uh, A string of fires ignited Sunday and Monday, burning more than 100,000 acres, making Monday one of the most destructive wildfire days in California history. The most damaging is the Tubbs Fire, a 27,000-acre inferno responsible for most of the deaths and the destruction. More than 100 people have been injured in the blazes. Authorities say they expect the... uh, uh, the death, injury, and damage tolls to rise. Many neighborhoods swallowed up by the flames have yet to be reached by firefighters or evacuated uh, residents. Uh, wineries took a hit. Paradise Ridge Winery in Kenwood, 10 miles east of Santa Rosa, confirmed in, on Facebook that its facility was consumed by the flames. Um, Noah Lowry runs an outdoor sports store in Santa Rosa, uh, says he and his wife, two-year-old uh, baby, were forced to flee the uh, uh, hard-charging flames in their area, and it continues. The word, winds, rather, were extremely erratic, making it difficult for people to know what to do, uh, hence uh, the uh, number of uh, people uh, who are unable to escape those flames and are uh, and those who are currently unaccounted for. So six minutes before uh, starting the firing on the crowd, the hotel um, where the Las Vegas shooter holed up uh, knew he was armed, dangerous, uh, right where he was located, uh, from the story, um, Jesus uh, Campos, who was injured in the leg during the shooting, investigated uh, soundings of drilling. He came to the 32nd floor room at the Mandalay Bay Resort, where the killer, Stephen Paddock, was staying, authorities said at a late afternoon press briefing, indicating that apparently the hotel knew uh, before any of this started where he was and that he had a gun. Paddock, who had an arsenal of rifles and ammunition in his room, was drilling holes through a wall in preparation for his well-planned attack, which included not only firing bullets at the concert goers below, but also the planting of at least 50 pounds of explosives in his car. Moments later, Campos was shot in the leg by Paddock, an injury that he would survive. The time of the shooting was 9.59 p.m. Las Vegas time, about six minutes before Paddock began spraying bullets into the crowd. And of course, they had no idea that that was his intention. But nonetheless, that's the timing of it. He killed 58, or rather 59, injured nearly 500 before fatally shooting himself as police closed in. From another story, Charles Sid Heal, a retired Los Angeles County Sheriff's commander and tactical expert, said the new time timeline changes the whole perspective of the shooting. Heal said that if police had known immediately that a guard had been shot, they would have rushed the room while the gunman was still firing. He said it seemed a signal, uh, to signal rather, a breakdown in communication. Uh, It doesn't say much for hotel security. Now, in hindsight, it's always easier to recognize uh, what should have been done at the time. I suppose the hotel perhaps didn't um, feel the the timing of letting law enforcement know was as important as we all now know uh, it should have been. Well, once again, a federal judge has declared that the longstanding clergy housing allowance violates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. Offered only to ministers of the gospel, the 60-year-old tax break excludes the rental value of a home from a taxable income of U.S. clergy. It's the most important tax benefit available to ministers, according to Guidestone Financial Resources. It's also the biggest American ministers currently avail themselves of the tax break to the tune of $800 million a year, according to the latest estimate 
by the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation. Wisconsin District Judge Barbara Crabb first ruled against the housing allowance in 2013, finding that the second part of the section, 107 of the IRS Code, provides a benefit to religious persons and no one else, even though doing so is not necessary to alleviate a special burden on religious exercise, end quote. Her ruling sent shockwaves through the religious community, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability stated at the time, but an appeals court overturned her decision in 2014, ruling that the atheist plaintiffs from the Freedom from Religion Foundation was not sufficiently harmed by the tax break to challenge it in court. The most fascinating turn in the legal fight was when the Department of Justice defended the housing allowance by arguing that atheist leaders qualify as ministers of the gospel and could claim the exemption for themselves. I'm not sure how atheist uh, leaders qualify as ministers of the gospel, but that's what the previous administration argued. The IRS, however disagreed. The Freedom From Religion Foundation changed how it uh, compensates its leaders to match the housing allowance the churches give pastors and sued again when its co-president was uh, presidents rather were denied the tax break. On Friday, Crab ruled that their favor rather ruled in their favor again, saying, "I adhere to my earlier conclusion that the allowance violates the establishment clause." Because it does not have a secular purpose or effect, and because a reasonable observer would view the statute as an endorsement of religion. Again, striking it down. Family Research Council commented, releasing a statement saying the anti-faith environment created by the Obama administration was a long way to explaining why such a lawsuit could be deemed to be anything more than religious harassment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 22 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Later this hour, we're going to hear from Pastor Clenard Childress. He's the founder of the website blackgenocide.org. He serves on the board of directors for the Center for Bioethical Reform. We'll also talk with Jackie Hawkins, who's the director of minority outreach at the Center for Bioethical Reform. They're in the Portland area. They're in the state of Oregon for the Genocide Awareness Project. Now, that's a big word you might recall during the um, the genocide in Rwanda, the haggling over the use of that word and what constitutes Uh, a genocide. Well, it is appropriately applied to what's happening right here in our country as it relates to abortion. We're going to explain that and what this project sets about doing to inform people about what's happening right here in our own backyard. Pastor uh, Childress and Jackie Hawkins joining us in our next segment. We talked about censorship on social media yesterday. Well, last Thursday, Mike Rowe, the um, immensely likable host of Dirty Jobs announced via a Facebook post that his YouTube channel has been restricted. Now, anyone who has ever watched a micro video would be shocked to uh, to hear this news as his videos. They're uh, some of the most carefully worded, timely and poignant thoughts on a great variety of issues. His overall popularity is the uh, response, the result. And one thing Roe trumpets is respect for the value of hard work, no matter the job. Well, in this vein, a few months back, conservative commentator Dennis Prager invited Rowe to give the commencement speech for his virtual university, Prager University. Well, Rowe gladly obliged with a video entitled Don't Follow Your Passion, which has been viewed over six million times. 
Williams. Well, suddenly, without prior warning, Roe received a message from YouTube notifying him that his video for PragerU, and of course, you know, there have been efforts to censor Prager University's uh, online university, was determined to be inappropriate. Well, Roe explains that he was shocked at the news as he had not run afoul of YouTube's appropriate content policies, and so he thought... Well, apparently that was not the case. He said that he uh, then reread YouTube's policy fine print and found the following sentence. Some videos don't violate our policies. Again, some videos don't violate our policies, but may not be appropriate for all audiences. In these cases, our review team may place an age restriction uh, when we're notified of the content. In other words, YouTube's censors are essentially saying they will restrict you if they don't like your message. There was not an age um, uh, uh, content uh, restriction put on it. It was simply was no longer available. Well, after Roe posted his message to Facebook, it didn't take long for YouTube to reverse course to lift the restriction imposed upon his content. Fortunately for him, he has a big enough audience that he was able to effectively call out YouTube for its hypocrisy. But what about the lesser known user who finds him or herself victim of a similar prejudice, which increasingly is the case? Now, there are some things that I think we would all agree are inappropriate and uh, and content that we would oppose. But um, YouTube and some of these other social media uh, platforms are so broadly defining what they consider to be inappropriate uh, that um, even content like Mike Rowe on uh, hard work is uh, considered inappropriate and had been censored and withdrawn. Well, Hillary Clinton today broke her silence after being criticized for waiting several days on the sexual misconduct allegations against Hollywood producer and Democratic donor Harvey Weinstein, saying such behavior cannot be tolerated. There should be an asterisk there because there were circumstances under which she argued quite um, vigorously that it should be tolerated. We won't go into that now, but she did say, and I'm quoting, I was shocked and appalled by the revelations about Harvey Weinstein, the 2016 Democratic presidential nominee, said in her statement released on Twitter by a spokesman, Nick Merrill. The behavior described by women coming forward cannot be tolerated. Their courage and the support of others is critical in helping to stop this kind of behavior. I will just uh, briefly um, look back for a moment and remind you of uh, her treatment of women who made similar charges against her spouse. Again, I won't go into the details, but uh, it did uh, strike me as being the height of hypocrisy that she would make such a statement, even though the uh, behavior that's been um, uh, highlighted is entirely uh, inappropriate and unacceptable. Well, Weinstein was a fixture among Democratic supporters and close to party luminaries for decades, making the allegations especially embarrassing for a party that touts itself as pushing progressive policies for women. And it's become clear that it was widely known for a very long period of time. In fact, a couple of uh, Hollywood stars uh, squelched a New York Times story some uh, 10 years ago that would have presented those allegations at the time. Well, last week, the New York Times reported that Weinstein had had uh, uh, settled uh, sexual harassment lawsuits with at least eight women. More allegations emerged Tuesday in The New Yorker, and of course it's now ballooned into what we know to be the story. Well, Weinstein contributed $46,350 to the Clinton presidential candidacy campaign, rather, as well as Hill PAC, a, a committee Clinton used to support other Democrats while she was a senator, according to the Associated Press. He also made massive donations to the Clinton Foundation of about $100,000 to two hundred. $50,000 through June of 2017. 
Uh, and it goes on from there. Now, the temptation is to become rather smug that, see, this is evidence of what the left does. And certainly the right is never guilty of. But I appreciated what Cal Thomas had to say as we um, consider what's um, uh, what's been made public and how we ought to respond. Cal Thomas, writing for the Patriot Post, says this, first quoting from Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. Well, he writes, this is Cal Thomas, ancient wisdom from a higher authority, which is available to anyone who takes the time to consider it, was provided to constrain people like Harvey Weinstein, and for that matter, the rest of us, from acts he has been accused of committing. In an age when we have cast off most restraints, why is anything off limits? Who decides where the limits are these days, and on what do they base their decisions? Haven't some federal judges been eviscerating the U.S. Constitution for decades? Haven't even some clergy made attempts to rewrite? Right or ignore scripture, scripture rather, to conform to opinion polls and align themselves with contemporary trends. Many Republicans and conservatives are joyfully berating and belittling Harvey Weinstein and his fellow leftists, but they should remind themselves that sin is not exclusive to one party or political persuasion. Representative Tim Murphy resigned his office last week after the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette obtained text messages between he and his mistress in which he told her to have an abortion if she thought she might be pregnant. Murphy, who claims to be pro-life and is publicly co-sponsored a bill that would ban abortion after 20 weeks. Much newspaper ink is being spilled and nightly news time spent discussing Weinstein after an investigative story in the New York Times in which many women who claim to have been harassed in the most disgusting ways imaginable have come forward to tell their stories. On Sunday, Weinstein was fired from his own company. Lisa Bloom, who resigned last Saturday as an advisor to him, made the laughable claim that he is a dinosaur who came of age at a time when such behavior was more acceptable. Really? Acceptable to whom? Hugh Hefner, maybe, who fired the first shot in the sexual revolution, aren't victims of unwelcome sexual advances just some of the casualties of that revolution? Hypocrisy is a word that is thrown around a lot. Conservatives are guffawing that Weinstein, who is a Democrat, was also an enthusiastic supporter of donor uh, and donor rather to Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. The Republican National Committee issued a press release demanding Democratic politicians who received donations from Weinstein return their money. Republicans are not immune from the temptations of the flesh and the boorish, even criminal behavior. In addition to Murphy, you can Google Republicans and sex scandals and read some of them. Denunciations of Weinstein are coming from all quarters of the political spectrum, though the Hollywood crowd has been mostly silent. His critics presuppose a standard by which such behavior can be judged. But we are ridding ourselves of most standards faster than a snake sheds its skin. What did we expect the outcome to look like? In our moral life and collective notions of right and wrong, if we still have notions of right and wrong, to be decided by opinion polls and personal feelings, or is there a higher authority that should rule over individuals as well as nations? The question should not be rhetorical. It demands an answer. This quotes from Francis D. Uh, Rochefoucauld uh, seems to fit our reaction to the Weinstein affair as well as many others. Hypocrisy is the homage vice pays to virtue. Once again, questions should be asked in this increasingly morally vacuous age. What is vice and what is virtue? Who gets to decide on what shall the definitions be based? Weinstein needs help that no counselor can fully offer. Only a transformed life can help him become a new and different man. And such help can only come from a higher authority. In addition to excoriating his conduct, perhaps we should also pray 
that he would come to know that higher power, so to speak, and that we ourselves would not fall into similar temptation. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Pastor Clenar Childress and Jackie Hawkins. We're talking about the Genocide Awareness Project. You need to be made aware, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show about 38 minutes after 4 o'clock. Glad to have you with us. Well, as you know, abortion on demand has been the law of the land for decades now. But what you may not know is the eugenics roots of abortion in our country. And uh, Margaret Sanger had it in her mind that abortion would be available to whatever uh, woman would pursue one, but that she had a particular interest in uh, reducing the number of undesirables, among them minorities. African-Americans make up about 12.6% of the U.S. population today, but black women account for a shocking 35.4% of all abortions in 2009. Now, some might argue that's inadvertent. That's just uh, just the way it is. Women are, are capable of pursuing abortions on their own, but Margaret Sanger would be thrilled at those uh, statistics and would be pursuing even greater numbers. Well, with me here in studio is Pastor Clenard Childress. He's the founder of the website blackgenocide.org. He serves on the board of directors of the Center for Bioethical Reform. And Jackie Hawkins, who's the director of minority outreach at the Center for Bioethical Reform, Reform as well. They join me now to talk about the Genocide Awareness Project. Thank you both for being with us. Appreciate it very much having us. Thank you. Thank now, we talk a lot about um, uh, abortion and what it means to be pro-life and the, the scourge on our country of this practice uh, that was secured by the U.S. Supreme Court some years ago. The use of the word genocide might be confusing to some of our listeners. So let's talk about what the black genocide uh, is and, and why we should be concerned about that particular element of the abortion industry. Okay, well, genocide is the targeting of any ethnicity or any group uh, for the sole purpose of reducing uh, their numbers. And it's the targeting that we're deeply concerned about. Uh, It is the ideology of uh, Margaret Sanger that was, to, as you stated, to target those whom she deemed as undesirable. Uh, Her comments such as uh, colored people are human weeds. They need to be exterminated. That is like the foundation of her approach. So genocide basically is what it has become. Uh, If indeed uh, right now the African-American replacement level is 1.86, when you need 2.2 in order to replace the given uh, population, Uh, Caucasian is 2.3. They're only a point behind Mm -hmm. that. And so, therefore, it has become a genocidal effect on the African-American community. Seventy-nine percent and 82 percent of Planned Parenthood's offices are in African-American neighborhoods by design. And people will say, well, that's where the need is. Well, that was her need to come to the community. She was marketing abortion and eugenics and sterilization, too. She said, we have to get the colored minister to be basically the face of our genocide program. And it was basically called the Negro Project. And the whole basis of the Negro Project was to get African-Americans to accept abortion as a means of, as a contraceptive. So therefore, we see it today being played out. Unfortunately, black leadership has fallen into this trap. 
And literally, sociologically speaking, it's now become genocide. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, the African-American Museum was opened recently in Washington, D.C. One of the things they failed to include was this notion of the impact abortion is having on the African-American community. You recently won a victory in this area. Tell our listeners a little bit about the challenge of making this issue a point at that museum that's now being seen by millions of people uh, all across the world. Yes. Now, the uh, Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture is a massive black history museum based um, on right on top of the National Mall in Washington, D.C., um, while that's all great and good, it for some reason omits the fact that 20 million black people are missing from the population um, because of abortion, not because of police brutality or black on black crime or heart attacks. It's all because of abortion. And that's conveniently skipped over. Um, they have a strong emphasis on slavery, on Black Lives Matter, but there's for some reason nobody cares about those ghost black lives that were snuffed out um, in the darkness by their own parents. By eugenics, eugenics, by basically. Eugenics. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going there to diversify the message at the museum that's rather uh, homogenous in its point of view. Um, we went to the museum in February with our Black Breast Cancer Abortion Connection uh, awareness picture um, because black women are already susceptible to breast cancer. Having an abortion uh, increases your risk tremendously if you are black. Um, versus having the baby, especially breastfeeding the baby, protects black women. Um, but they don't tell you this in schools or uh, Planned Parenthood. Well, we went to the museum with our sign just to uh, catch uh, what would happen on mm-hmm. tape. They said, you're, they said we, get, we were given the runaround when we tried to say, hey, we want to stand here. What's the process? And this police officer told us to talk to this head of somebody. And this head of somebody told us to talk to that police officer. And it kept going on and on. Well, we went and we were uh, we went and stood on the publicly owned side, the public sidewalk owned by the publicly funded museum that touts itself as a free marketplace of ideas. And we were confronted by a museum official and three armed guards. We were told that if we did not move, they would move us for us. Mm -hmm. So we were threatened with arrest. But we took it to court. We um, sued the museum. And because our case was so solid, the Department of Justice settled out and said, yeah, you can stand on the public muse- public sidewalk in front of the publicly funded museum that touts itself as a free marketplace of ideas. Hmm. So we have this project. I am leading it. Uh, we are going to, we would like to have a constant all Black Lives Matter uh, uh, message presentation. From pre-born at, right until natural death. Absolutely. Exactly. So nonstop, all the time, all Black Lives Matter. These Black Lives that have their hands up, they can't breathe, and they're always 100% innocent no matter what. Mm. Mm. Well, that is uh, that is a victory because that's a message, especially in the context historically of Margaret Sanger, her uh, her statements about uh, her desire to eliminate blacks and the history of how Planned Parenthood and some of these other abortionists have have uh, strategically placed themselves in communities that would have a greater impact on African-American communities. Now, I need to take a break here for just a moment. But when we come back, we're going to talk about the Genocide Awareness Project. What you described is a a little bit of what that uh, would reflect. Um, But we'll we'll come back and get into that in just a few moments. Again, we're talking with Pastor Clenard Childress. He's the founder of the website blackgenocide.org. Let me encourage you to check that out. He also serves on the board of the Center for Bioethical Reform and Jackie Hawkins, who's the director of Minority Outreach at the Center for Bioethical Reform. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. With me in studio, Pastor Clenard Childress. He's the founder of the website blackgenocide.org. He also serves on the board of the Center for Bioethical Reform. Jackie Hawkins joins us. She's the director of minority outreach at the Center for Bioethical Reform. Now, just before the break, Jackie, you talked about the All Black uh, Black Lives Matter and that part of the project. And you mentioned that there were signs. What are, what are you talking about in terms of the display that goes along with this message that says even black lives in the womb should be considered as a value? Yes, these signs um, are the photographic evidence of the crimes that take place in every abortion clinic across America. They are graphic images of the decapitated and dismembered tiny human beings, tiny babies that have been aborted. Um, This shows the humanity of the preborn, the fingers, the toes, the head, the face, the, the, the severed, chopped up body, the humanity of the preborn and the inhumanity of the abortion practice. Now, as you know, this has been controversial within the pro-life movement. There's a branch that says <laughs> these images are not necessary to communicate the message. And in fact, it's harmful to the movement. And then there's the, the side that says you need to put a face, if you will, on this issue. People think we're talking about, as we were told, a blob of tissue that is really unformed and we shouldn't extend much concern uh, regarding. Why is it important from your perspective that these images be seen by people who probably have very little understanding of what what happens in an abortion. Because without the pictures, people are able to maintain the fantasy that it is just a blob of tissues, a parasite, a whatever, and therefore there's no reason to care. Mm. Um, And when you maintain that fantasy that there's no reason to care, people don't do anything or they don't think about the issue until it's knocking at their door. Girlfriend's pregnant. Uh Uh-oh, what do we do? Let's abort. We show the pictures before that happens um, so that people have are armed with knowledge, and when they that issue might knock at their door, the women are like, "I don't care what I have to do. I am having this baby." Boyfriend is less inclined to say, "I'm going to kill you if you don't abort." Mom and dad are less likely to say, "We'll kick you out if you have this baby," because they know what abortion is. They know that it rips apart the child, the grandchild, the son, the daughter of the the parents. And people are a lot less likely to have that done to their own family members. Mm, It deals with deniability. Mm -hmm. What kind of response do you get? And I imagine there's a full range, but but, um, we can imagine the one response that this is a hideous image. I don't want to look at it. But how is this effective in uh, causing people to really consider what it is we're talking about? Especially talking to my dear Christian brothers and sisters who are out there who are listening to this and, and know that there's two sides. It's amazing for the pro-life side to make that argument about the graphic visual pictures uh, not being necessary when 90% of women who see a sonogram refuse to abort. Hmm. That's a picture. That's a picture of humanity of the person. Also, we are great students of Dr. Martin Luther King, and he said in order for racism to be eradicated, racism had to be seen. And that's why he was in Selma. That's why he was in Birmingham. He knew at that time they had the the uh, favor of the media to take those pictures. We don't even have that today. But he knew if indeed racism could be seen, then unquestionably racism would begin to end, especially uh, in America. So to say uh, and all social justice uh, reform is proved that the victim had to be visualized. Mm. I, I, I repeat that again. The victim has to be visualized. Other than that, 
we read about lynchings. We heard about it. But when you see it, you want to do something about that. That's an injustice. And so we are only following past successes of social justice reform. But the most recent one we can certainly point to, and we would love to talk to anyone who doesn't understand our position on imagery, graphic imagery, was the civil rights movement. Anyone out there saw the picture of Selma? Why did he stay in Selma? Because when he walked into the hotel, somebody knocked him to the floor and said, and reached out their hand, but punched him in the face and knocked him to the floor. Dr. King got up and said, this is the place, because he knew that those people would be the means for others to see racism. To see what was happening. Yes. We actually have um, uh, signs we're developing with babies that have been saved by pictures. Um, the, we call them the chubby baby photos. We have abortion pictures, and we also have the baby that was saved by that exact picture. Um, and these are some of many babies who are saved. So we're not just doing this on the one hand, on a macro level, we're trying to change public opinion about abortion in general. But on sort of an individual level, we're trying to save mothers from mm-hmm. going down a path from which they cannot return. They can receive a certain amount of healing, but there's no returning to pre-abortion and there's no getting that child back. So we hold them back from the slaughter and we direct them to a, to a you know, um, I forget what, what the exact reference is, but we get them to choose life so their children may live. One of the quotes that I um, read that Dr. Bob Seemuth um, wrote, that there is a demonic aspect to the the practice of abortion. It's Satan's attempt to kill God's effigy by destroying the little ones created in God's image. There is another element to this uh, this heinous practice of abortion that we don't often think about. There's a spiritual element to it uh, as well. And, um, Pastor, how does that, uh, that part of uh, this controversy um, impact the way you approach trying to, uh, to seek social justice. Since Adam, evil has hated everything that has to do with the imagery of God. We're made in God's image. And so he has pursued always to destroy, to maim, to kill that image. Molech in the early Old Testament. Uh, surprisingly enough, even the Jewish people got back into practicing child sacrifice. It wasn't just the Assyrians or the Assyrians and the other nations. The point of the fact of the matter is with uh, the shedding of innocent blood pollutes the land. Evil wants the land polluted. I don't want to get into all the uh, demonic witchcraft and all these uh, blood sacrifices, always a part of their rituals, the shedding of innocent blood. And that's the key. Innocent blood must be shed for certain powers of darkness to be risen up. So when Mr. Seemuth says, Abortion is child sacrifice. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what evil is attempting to do with the those who are made in the image of God. Uh, but unquestionably, we have to understand that it is something that the Christian has to answer. Uh, we're looking because you can't legislate morality. We thank God for laws, but abortion should be unconscionable. Mm-hmm. And I was sharing with uh the director and we because of the sign he created Jeremiah 32 and 5 it says that the, I'm going to summarize it other than to read it by text was that God was saying for a man or a woman to destroy their child or to offer their child to Molech never came into my mind God talked about adultery he talked about the murder between grown people he talked about rape he talked about incest 
God says, I do not allow the thought of a parent sacrificing their child or killing their child to even come into my mind. Mm -hmm. Paul later to the Church of Rome says, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I say to my Christian brothers and sisters who feel abortion has to be a part of our society, how can you allow that thought to come into your mind and God doesn't let it in his? Unconscionable is the, mm-hmm. is the right approach. Now, we're almost out of time, but uh, tell us about the Genocide Awareness Project and what your goal is in exposing the practice of abortion to those who are pro-life and those who are pro-abortion uh, in various settings in which they are forced to consider that image. The Genocide Awareness Project is kind of our flagship prog- project. It first shows uh, that abortion decapitates and dismembers tiny human beings on an individual level, um, on a massive level, because 1.2 million people die through these means every year in America alone. It is a genocide comparable to genocides of the past. We have the Holocaust, uh, Rwanda, uh, Cambodia, a few other genocides, and human rights atrocities like Jim Crow and slavery represented in this display. And we go to college campuses and show people what abortion actually is, and we as a society are committing genocide against our own American citizens. Um, There's several reasons we go to college campuses. They are uh, the future leaders of our country. There's a whole lot of them at at any given day, (laughs) and they are also the most abortion-vulnerable age group, women age 18 to 25, and men who might force those girls in or those Mm -hmm. young women into abortion are also age 18 to 25 on the college campus. Um, so that gets a lot of things done all in one, a lot of bang for your buck. We go there, we debate with people, we discuss, and like I did yesterday, we comfort those hurting after the culture of death chewed them up and spit them out. Hmm. There is forgiveness. Yeah. And then deny that they even have the right to feel sorrowful for what they had already done. The best place for them, for our listeners to find out more about the project Abortionno.org. Well, thank you both so much for coming. I hope you'll keep in touch and uh, keep us aware of your progress uh, here and across the country. Thank you so much. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I have to admit that I'm a uh, I'm a fan of the next org- organization we're going to focus on here in just a few moments. They have a celebration dinner uh, coming up on the 28th, and I'm talking about Prep for Kids. Now, some of you are familiar with the name. Others of you need to become more familiar because this is a release time program right here in our community. Now, release time means that public school students can be released during school hours for religious training off campus. And Prep for Kids is a nonprofit ministry. It has uh, operated in the the greater Portland area for 25 years. So they're a fixture here. Their mission is to help children and young people and their families find purpose and direction through the study of God's word. Now, you can't get much better than that. Well, here to talk with us about the organization as well as the upcoming celebration dinner is uh, Joni Militich. She's the area director for Prep for Kids. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you, Georgine. Well, I'm excited that there's another opportunity for our listeners uh, to celebrate with Prep for Kids, but to also learn more about the ministry and perhaps consider how they might become involved. Um, I don't want to assume that all of our listeners are familiar with Prep and uh, the the practice of release time, but what we know about it is that it makes a difference in the lives of 
the kids who are uh, participating as well as those who are ministering to them as volunteers. Tell us a little bit about uh, Prep for Kids, for those who don't know. Okay. Yeah, actually, we're up to being our 34th year now. 34th. And, uh, yes, yes. Uh, we have uh, 34 schools that we serve in 18 classes. Uh, we serve the tri-county areas of Multnomah, Washington, and Clackamas counties. And it's an exciting coordination effort of a small office staff, of which I'm one, and about 100 volunteers, uh, parents, schools, and churches. And once a week across this area, Students are released for about an hour, 15 minutes average, and uh, given in an instructional, uh, academic type of approach, Bibles open, worksheets out, interactive, systematic Bible study. They're moved through the whole scripture. Um, If they stay with us five years, they go all the way through. Um, We're excited about the historical and apologetics background that's included in every lesson so that kids are learning that their faith is a fact-based faith. Um, Yeah, so exciting opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, about 50% of the families that choose to enroll their kids our unchurched families that are um, what the scripture has to say in the claims of Christ. So it's a wonderful interfacing of our believing kids out of churches and friends who are just being introduced to Christ. Uh, and I, I think it's important to mention, too, that any child that attends uh, has to have written permission from a parent or guardian. So kids just don't yeah. decide to go on their own. Their parents are involved in that. They have extended their consent for their children to get that kind of uh, of training. Now, it may be surprising to many of our listeners that release time is permitted in the state of Oregon, but this is by statute here. Right, right. Oregon statute 339.420. Yeah, been on the books a long time. And actually, every state um, in the United States um, has the opportunity for release time, but within each state, the programs are developed that fit the specific laws that our national Supreme Court has upheld repeatedly. Yeah, it all began back in 1914, believe it or not. Now, uh, you know, one might assume that given the fact that this is such a tremendous opportunity for the church to reach out into the community and to help train young people with their parents' permission, which means the parents are interested in what their children are being taught, that you just must be overwhelmed with volunteers, that you must have cash pouring in to help fund this program. (laughs) That's what one would assume, because this is a prime opportunity for for the gospel to be shared. How far off am I in terms of, of uh, what the well, status is in, in doing off, this? <laughs> right. Yeah, it, um, the challenge is getting the word to families, um, unchurched or church through our churches, that the law is on the books um, and that they can request through contacting our organization um, a class They can register their interest in that, and then we can go about contacting a church nearby to see if they would open their site, and if we can work with them to create a team of volunteers and train them 
Um, so getting the word out to local churches that the law exists and through them to parents. It's usually Christian parents that see the um, missile value of this in their kids' lives as well as the systematic instruction that they're getting. And they become the catalyst for then inviting their friends, those families. Mm-hmm. And then the classes grow from there, and the word spreads within that school once we can offer a class. As was mentioned earlier, classes are usually held at a church that's close to the school. So this presents right. an opportunity for churches uh, to minister in their own communities. Uh, for churches uh, and in school districts that don't already have a prep for kids, what's the best way for them to uh, open their doors so that young people can come there and learn more about the gospel. Mm-hmm. Well, we'd encourage any um, church staff person listening who's interested to contact us um, at our number, which I know you'll be giving out, um, or at our website. And then we at the office here meet with that church and begin to brainstorm, um, help them with communication within their own body. Um, to see if they've got a core of people who could take the program that we can give them. Uh, I think one of the exciting things is we provide the Bibles, um, we provide the curriculum, we use the Answers in Genesis curriculum that Ken Ham has developed, Um, we train the volunteers, we support the volunteers, we have the structure in place that stays within the law and coordinates church, school, um, and parents appropriately. So we really have the structure ready for them to step into if they've got a building and they've got a few people and they're near a school. Yeah. Now, uh, in order to learn more, to celebrate with what God is already doing in our community through the ministry of Prep for Kids and to perhaps prayerfully consider becoming involved, the celebration Mm -hmm. dinner that we're talking about that's coming up on Saturday the 28th is an opportunity to learn more. That's going to be at the Embassy Suites Hotel at Portland Airport. And uh, I have uh, for many years attended this banquet. It's, It's been a thrill to hear what God is doing. I'm not going to be able to this uh, year because there's a conflict, but I would Mm -hmm. encourage our listeners who want to learn more and perhaps to consider, am I being called to be a teacher, to be transportation? Is there a role that I can play? Is our church located close to a school that we might be involved? Who would you think, uh, or who do you think rather, would benefit from uh, attending the celebration dinner Saturday, October 28th? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Any parent who is interested in this potential for their own children and uh, families that they connect with in their local school, anyone who wants to volunteer, you may not attend a church that's near a school, but we could plug you into another class in your community. Um, any church who who wants to offer whatever part they have, perhaps their building, but they're uh, maybe a small church that couldn't get together a team of volunteers. A, a lot of these classes are a combination of believers from different churches, mm-hmm. and, and so it's a wonderful inner church, inter-church um, effort often. So a parent, a grandparent, a potential volunteer, um, someone in the ministry, Anybody, I think. And one of the great values is the information shared around the table with our coordinators and volunteers that attend and can share life story, um, how the classes have impacted their lives or the the children, you know, that they're seeing transformed and often being the change agents in their own families as they pray for unsaved parents or uh, parents 
that um, are in prison, parents with addictions, the, the stories are really remarkable. Mm, yes. Well, for listeners who are interested in learning more about PrEP for Kids, you can go to the website, PrEP, the number four, kids. That's PrEP4Kids.org. And there's lots of information there as well as a video that I think you'll enjoy. And if you're interested in the, the banquet, and I hope you'll take the opportunity to learn more about this uh, very timely and effective ministry in our community. Again, that's coming up on Saturday, October the 28th, 6 o'clock p.m. at the Embassy Suites Hotel, Portland Airport. And the number to call for uh, for more information or to arrange to participate is 503-281-7764. That's 503-281-7764. Well, Joni, I appreciate your commitment to serving uh, families and children in our community and uh, appreciate your taking time to talk with us today. Thanks for having us on. Have so a much. great celebration dinner. I'll be we back will. next year. Thank you. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Again, uh, Joni Milicic is the area director of Prep for Kids and their celebration dinner coming up in a couple of weeks. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the program, but today was our pastor appreciation breakfast. And oh, what a treat it is to get together uh, with those men and women who serve in our community in leadership roles and to just celebrate them, to encourage them and to sit down and have a little bit of a little bit of a meal. I sat at the table um of an old friend of mine, Danny Osborne, when I was just before I was even a teenager, he invited my sister and I to sing in a small group that he had put together that in, that included teenagers from local high schools. And it was thrilling to us because we weren't quite there yet, but we were uh, asked to sing along with him. Well, his mom and several other people at our table have served in uh, pastor and leadership roles for many, many years. And to sit in the shadow of some of these saints who have been ministering in our community for many decades faithfully um, was just a thrill to me. His mother um, is 90 years old, or she will be shortly. I think she has a couple of weeks before her 90th birthday. She has so much enthusiasm and energy and a drive to continue to minister in our community, as she was called many years ago. It was just thrilling to be in a room full of people who, despite the challenges that they face, despite the challenges that many of us impose upon them, um, they are willing to to serve and to have uh, have the opportunity to just encourage them and to say thank you was absolutely a thrill. And of course, there was bacon, and that always helps. So anyway, today was our pastor appreciation breakfast. And for those of you who were not able to attend, those of you who are pastors or associates and family members and so on, uh, we want to extend a heartfelt Salem Media KPDQ thank you to you as well. Santa Rosa, California, a cluster of uh, devastating wildfires that have killed at least 15 people, many others still missing, destroyed more than 2,000 homes to date. Businesses, other buildings raged virtually unchecked across the state's uh, treasured wine country for the third day uh, today. Tens of thousands of Californians fled their homes, many of them Hold up in shelters, said authorities said, could be operating for several days. Power outages, cell phone disruptions added to the chaos uh, with this fast spreading uh, blaze prompting hundreds of missing persons rather reports. So uh, the chaos of not knowing if someone is in harm's way or if they were able to make it to safety has added to the uh, the pressure of 
the threat of losing everything with this uh, fire that is completely out of control. The fires fueled by dry grass and brush, heat and low humidity were uh, fanned by wind gusts reaching up to 80 miles per hour. Conditions improved somewhat today. The National Weather Service ended its red flag uh, fire warning in some areas, so that's at least a bit of encouragement. Still, homes and other structures were burning in some neighborhoods, and most areas remained unsafe for residents to return, according to the deputy um, incident commander for the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. So it's been a very difficult season in that part of California. It's... um. Uh, uh, understandable that when people don't see smoke, they want to go back in, says uh, the commander. But the fires are still out there. And, of course, we're seeing images of homes that are completely devastated by fire. And you think about the lives that uh, uh, that these homes represent, the the accumulated wealth of a family, the, um, uh, you know, the pictures, the stuff that you don't want to lose and all of that in what seems like mere moments, uh, utterly gone. It's a reminder, as we've seen events over the last several weeks that uh, if we cling too tightly to possessions, we will always be disappointed and um, suffer the potential of being devastated by the loss of those things. Now, we all, we need a place to stay. We need to have access to some things. But if we treasure them too much, um, there is a danger in that. Uh, For those of us who have purpose to make our treasure things that cannot be held in our hands, but recognize that we are accumulating wealth, if you will, Uh, In other ways, wealth that has eternal value, um, we will never be disappointed. It will never depreciate. It will never be lost uh, to dust and fire and famine and whatever else uh, might threaten to disrupt. So we have access to a thoroughly satisfying uh, cache, if you will, of uh, spiritual um, things that have eternal value. And I hope this is a reminder, as it uh, has been for me, I hope it's a reminder to all of us. Uh, that life is fleeting, the things that we uh, love and possess are not promised to us, that in the twinkling of an eye, it would seem, some things can be utterly destroyed, so that we make sure that we value the things that are um, are priceless and hold lightly those things that have the potential of simply fading away, as ultimately all things, aside from eternal things, will. So praying for the people in California as the wildfire there, wildfires, I should say, because there are several that have converged on a single uh, area are continuing to uh, blaze out of control. We've had a little taste of that in our community, the threats of many homes being destroyed. Fortunately, we did not, uh, thankfully, I should say, we did not see that kind of destruction and loss of life. In California, it's a different story, so we need to keep them in prayer. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Chip Ingram. His latest book, he's quite prolific, is Why I Believe. Uh, I like the title of that better than What I Believe, because it seems odd to me that you would ask the question, What do I believe? Well, if you should know what you believe. But why are there reasons to embrace the Christian faith that are reasonable, that you can explain to others? Why do I believe in Christ? Why do I believe uh, in, in Scripture? Why am I a follower of Jesus? So this book focuses on why we believe. There, uh, it's sort of a systematic theology, if you will, and it offers straight answers to honest questions about God, the Bible, and Christianity. And in our culture, uh, there are seasons in particular when people are more open to hearing um, answers to the questions, the sincere questions they might have. And so this book is designed to help uh, those who have questions about why uh, men and women of faith embrace Christianity, embrace Christ, 
and the uh, book Why I Believe. We're going to talk about just that. Also, Joan uh, Lippis is back in town. She's with Novea Ministry. She's going to hold a series of um, meetings on uh, Israel, past, present, and future, and an opportunity to learn from, uh, certainly from a biblical perspective, but also an historic perspective, the history of the nation of Israel. And she's also going to touch on um, what God's relationship with the nation of Israel means today and how we might interpret uh, that rela- uh, relationship moving forward. So that's uh, going to be the, the at least uh, the topic of some of our conversation. Uh, she'll be joining us here tomorrow. So looking forward to Joan Lippis, who lives in uh, Israel, but uh, makes it back home here to the Portland area from time to time. And she will be here for a special presentation to which you are invited. And we'll give you all the details for that tomorrow. As I mentioned, on Thursday and Friday, I will be away from the mic. I've got a couple of things going. Um, Dan Rice is anticipating, contemplating uh, retiring, and uh, we're going to go to an all-day retirement meeting. I know it sounds really exciting. We're going to a retirement meeting. But I guess that's what you do when you anticipate retiring, and you're in a, a system that's more complicated than your taxes. We've been already to one of these meetings. I have to tell you, I'm just thinking, just keep working. It's too difficult to figure out what you need to fill out this form and sign that and triplicate and then turn this over and then wait a couple weeks. I'm just thinking, just don't show up and eventually they'll figure it out. and Maybe they'll start sending you money, but we're not going that route. Dan Rice and I will be attending a retirement meeting uh, as he is um, uh, on the verge of making that decision. So that's what we'll be doing on Thursday. And I think we're going to uh, preempt the program with Eric Metaxas, so you'll get some um, some timely information there. Is that right, James? Yeah. And then on Friday, uh, we'll share one of the best of the Georgine Rice Show uh, programs. I know it's always presumptu- presumptuous to say the best of the Georgine Rice Show, to presume that there is one that's better than, you know, maybe some others. But nonetheless, that's what we call them, and that's what we'll share with you on Friday. We'll be back uh, in studio on Monday. Wanted to also, uh, before I uh, head out, uh, mention that we went yesterday uh, to talk with the heart transplant coordinator. And uh, we're we're starting to, um, I guess, engage the system. Uh, that's kind of a last resort. But um, for those of you who've been following um, Dan Rice and his uh, heart infection, that's where we are right now. We're hoping to finish his antibiotics shortly see how he does. And there are a couple of options that would include heart transplant, uh, which is the more dramatic um, possibility. So keep us in your prayers, if you will. I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blinn for engineering a portion of and, well, producing all of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.